Welcome to our spooky episode! If you haven't noticed, there's been a pretty big boom of true crime recently. I watch a lot of documentaries in my free time, and recently every time I've gone to like the documentary section on Hulu or Netflix or anything, all the movies are just true crime, and I don't know if that's based on what I've been watching, because I do watch a fair bit of true crime, but I watch other stuff too, so I don't know why it's like 95% one genre within the broad category that is documentaries, but I assume that it's just because it's really, really popular right now, and it's always been a pretty popular genre. It's easy to make. Uh, pretty much any budget will work. You can do a podcast, a YouTube channel, you can do a cheap TV documentary, or a big budget dramatization. And no matter what, there'll be an audience for it, and it's free IP. So you can just take stories that were already in the news that you know already interested people, and then just make a show about it because it's newsworthy and you don't need to get anyone's life rights to write about a serial killer. But because the genre has become so popular, it is now under increased scrutiny. A lot of people are starting to wonder if us turning every tragedy that ever becomes a headline into a story for entertainment is maybe not good. And that controversy surrounding true crime was especially stoked recently with the release of the Netflix miniseries that has one of the worst titles I've really ever seen on a TV show. I don't know if it's like an SEO thing that they want it to be as searchable as possible, but it's called Dahmer M-Monster colon The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. And it is a dramatization of, of course, the murders by Jeffrey Dahmer, who, if you didn't know, murdered a whole bunch of young boys and then ate them, or also just decapitated them and cut them up. I don't know that he ate all of his victims. I think he might have. But he ate enough that it's notable, you know? The series has been incredibly popular, despite the fact that it really had, like, no promo. It just kind of came onto Netflix. It stars Evan Peters and was produced by Ryan Murphy. And it's like record-breaking, like just unbelievable numbers that people are streaming this. Unfortunately, it was made without the consent or knowledge of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims or his victims' families, who are very much still alive, quite a lot of them. And they're pretty upset because Naturally, this whole thing being brought to the forefront of public consciousness yet again has been re-traumatizing to them. They've had to relive the horrendous tragedy that they dealt with just a couple decades ago. And also, Netflix didn't talk to them before making this whatsoever. None of the producers talked to them. And they've had to see, some of them, recreations of their own actions from the series. Like, one of the people who testified at Jeffrey Dahmer's trial, they recreated that entire speech that that person gave and didn't talk to that person at all. 
And they had to see an actor wearing their exact outfit just from screenshots online of this show that they had nothing to do with and weren't consulted about. And that's pretty fucked up to see yourself on a fucking Netflix show that you had no idea was even being made. And it's about a trauma that you would really not like to relive. It's it's gross. And for that, a lot of people did boycott the Netflix show. And by a lot of people, I mean some people said that they did, but it still is a record-breaking show. So, you know, I'm not saying that people didn't boycott it. I'm just saying that clearly the message wasn't received widely enough for it to really make a difference, which is often the case with media like this. Media boycotts often don't work because unless a particular piece of media has a very niche audience, and that audience is willing to all come together in union to not watch something or consume it in any sort of way, other people are just going to watch it. And this has a pretty wide-reaching audience, so yeah, it was very popular, and because of that, I did watch it. I waited a while. I wasn't going to watch it at first, but then the streaming numbers kept being reported as, like, monumentally large, and I was like, okay, well, fuck it. If everyone else is going to watch this, I guess I'll just fucking watch it too, because I did have interest in it. I don't know that much about Jeffrey Dahmer. I knew he was a cannibal, but I didn't know the specifics of the crimes he committed, so I, I had an interest, and I watched it. I know some people on Twitter are going to say that that means I'm going to hell, but... You know what? I could only deprive myself of the things that I want for so long. When the Amazon work strikes were happening for a while and people were talking about how the conditions working at Amazon warehouses were not great, I was boycotting Amazon for a bit, for a couple months. I did not buy anything on Amazon. And then it seemed like I was the only one because Amazon just kept doing more and more business. And eventually I was like, well, fuck, I also want stuff. If no one else is going to commit to this, I'm just going to go fucking buy some stuff on Amazon. And I did. So if you've been holding off on seeing the Jeffrey Dahmer show because you know that it was made with some iffy decisions on the production end, I honestly, I, you might as well just fucking watch it. At this point, who cares? Nothing we do matters. Let's all just succumb to the depravity of society. Anyway, if you weren't watching it for some moral reason, I... Regret to inform you that it's pretty good. I mean, it's not great. If you feel really committed to not watching it at all, then don't bother. You don't have to. It's good, though. I mean, the thing is, there's always kind of a gray area with stuff like this because while the families of the victims may not have wanted it to be made and their feelings definitely did deserve to be taken into account and it's really awful to me that the producers didn't try to reach out to them whatsoever. It also is a story that was really big in the zeitgeist. It's a part of American history, as horrible as that is. And understanding how it happened and why it happened and what could have maybe done to prevent some of it from happening, it, it's something that we all have an interest in that we all have a stake in, so 
it's not even just the story of Jeffrey Dahmer or of the victims or of the victims' families or the people that were directly impacted by the tragedy. It's also the story of America to one degree or another. And I would say what is good about the show is it doesn't glorify Jeffrey Dahmer as much as I think people might assume that a show like this would. I mean, prior to me watching it, I didn't know much about Jeffrey Dahmer, and I kind of assumed that if someone was able to get away with murdering a whole bunch of people over the span of years, they probably were pretty good at getting away with it. Like, they must have been some sort of evil genius, or they were just really charming, and so they could get away with crimes easier than the average person. But watching this show, presuming that it's accurate, um, no, that was definitely not the case with Jeffrey Dahmer. He was not very good at covering up his crimes. He was pretty, pretty bad at it, actually. And he also wasn't really that charming. He was kind of weird. So the only reason that he was able to get away with all the people that he had murdered for as long as he did until he was eventually caught, thank God, we could have prevented a whole lot of murder if the police weren't just fucking terrible at their jobs and if we as a culture cared more about protecting the marginalized communities that we ourselves have marginalized, we as a culture, we as a society. So there is a lot of good commentary within the show, and I'll say that Evan Peters does a really good job. I know that there was concern because he's just very attractive as a person, Evan Peters is, and putting a hot guy as your lead playing a serial killer is maybe a bit problematic because it encourages people to be a little bit more sympathetic toward him or encourages them to lust after him in some inappropriate way. Uh, that was a whole thing with one of those Ted Bundy movies that got made too, where Zac Efron was playing Ted Bundy. And I will say that to some degree, uh, that's purposeful that they have attractive people playing these roles because it helps emphasize how these guys were able to get away with stuff by being attractive-ish white guys. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't that good-looking, and Ted Bundy was also not as good-looking as Zac Efron, but in a movie or TV show, you have to up the person's attractiveness just to get the point across. Like, an attractive person in real life just doesn't really seem that attractive when you put them in a movie. So, you know, it's not going to translate, really, unless you actually do get someone who looks like Evan Peters or Zac Efron. And we as human beings do have a tendency to sympathize with things that we find attractive, like even dogs and stuff. The reason that we protect dogs in American culture and we don't protect pigs who get turned into bacon and ham and whatnot, even though pigs are smarter than dogs, is because dogs are cuter. Though pigs are awful cute too, and some of them come in pink, so I do think that we should be a little more protective of pigs. But this is a bias that we as human beings have, so I don't think it's totally outside the realm of appropriateness to emphasize that in a TV show or movie about a killer who did get away with crimes for quite a while. But yeah, I mean, it definitely doesn't help with the whole 
fandom thing that surrounds some serial killers. Because, you know, it's hard to look at Evan Peters and not be like, oh yeah, that guy's fucking hot. I want to fuck him. But I think that the show does a good enough job at showing Jeffrey Dahmer to just be such a gross person that I personally did not really want to fuck him all that much while watching the show. There was a moment, though, when they were in a club, Jeff and one of his eventual victims, and it it did work for me in the way that when you look at Jeffrey Dahmer, played by Evan Peters from across a room, and you're looking at it from the perspective of one of his eventual victims, you do get it, you know? You're like, oh yeah, I, I would go home with that guy. So in a way, maybe it sort of helps helps us empathize with the victims a bit. I understand why some of them would have followed that man home. But for all the things that the show does right, it also does some stuff very, very wrong. So for one thing, just the fact that it exists at all is just going to stoke more interest in Jeffrey Dahmer, and that is very problematic for the people who are most directly affected by his crimes, because now retailers are having to, like, ban Jeffrey Dahmer costumes for Halloween, which is good that they're doing that. I'm glad that they're banning people from selling Jeffrey Dahmer costumes, but the fact that that's even a thing that's in demand is troubling. Netflix also, I believe this is completely aside from the people who work directly on this new series with Ryan Murphy, but Netflix as a streaming platform is, I guess, going to be putting out another Jeffrey Dahmer documentary soon, so they're really milking this, and that's gross. And then on top of that, the fact that the victims weren't involved in this show whatsoever I think does a disservice to the show itself. It could have been much stronger had the victims been involved in the first place because, number one, toward the back half of the series, it starts to do a lot of commentary on the entertainment culture which surrounds a lot of serial killers. It properly criticizes the fact that people were making comic books about Jeffrey Dahmer or that so much media was made about Ed Gein, another serial killer. It gets that stuff right in a sense, but it only gets it right so far as it's bringing it up, but it's undermining its own message by the fact that it too is turning Jeffrey Dahmer's story into a TV show for entertainment and is doing so without the permission of the people who are most affected by him. It would have made a lot more sense for them to be making that criticism if they were in some way compensating the victims, or if they were giving the victims a platform to tell their own stories. I think especially it would have helped the show overall, because every time that you see Jeffrey Dahmer killing someone in the show, a lot of the time it's not from the victim's perspective specifically. I mean, you do feel bad for the victims, but there's only one episode where you actually follow one of the victims for a long time, and it's really, really effective. You get to see this person's family life. You get to see him trying to get a job in the city. You get to see him trying to find love, which for a gay man and a black deaf gay man, 
was especially challenging for him, so you see how vulnerable he was at the time when he met Jeffrey Dahmer, and the two of them had somewhat of a relationship in the show at least. I don't know what happened in real life, but in the show it does depict them as getting close to one another and kind of starting to be like boyfriend-boyfriend. And then when Jeffrey Dahmer kills him, you actually don't see the death on screen. You see the dead body for a second, and you are aware of what's going to happen before it does happen. But it is extra terrifying because you spend enough time with the victim that you feel really, really horrible when he dies. He's not just a person that Jeffrey Dahmer happened to kill. He's not just one of 17 victims. He's a real human being that you get to spend time with. And it's really gut-wrenching when Jeffrey, especially as someone who already knew that man, decides to kill him. It really emphasizes what a heartless monster Jeff was. And if that sort of storytelling had taken place throughout the show, and you got to see that with every victim that dies on screen, it would have been way more effective as just a series, as a narrative. And one of the things that I know is really tragic for people who have had to deal with the kind of loss that the victims' families have had to deal with is that once someone dies by a famed serial killer, their entire life can get kind of reduced in the public consciousness to their death. So people will know of these victims as victims, but they don't know of them as real human beings. So I think if the producers really wanted to have a victim-centric narrative, they could have talked to the victim's families and asked them things about their loved one. Ask them like, hey, what were the kind of things that they liked? What did they do on a day-to-day -day basis? And maybe you can follow all of the victims on like a standard day of their life prior to their death. And then that way, the victims' families might have a platform with which they can talk about their loved ones in a way that isn't just specifically related to how they died, and you have a TV show where you feel genuinely really connected to the victims prior to their death, and it makes the death itself more horrifying. So I really don't think there was any downside in just at least trying to get in contact with the families. At best, some of them may have actually wanted to collaborate and have their input heard on the project, and the people who didn't, who wanted absolutely nothing to do with the show, you can just fictionalize their characters. You don't have to have people wearing the exact outfits that actual human beings were wearing during an actual trial. You can make some stuff up and still have it resonate the same way. You don't need everything to be accurate especially when you're portraying people on screen that didn't consent to being portrayed in that way. So yeah, some yucky decisions made by the producers. And because of that, and also just because of the entire increase in popularity of true crime, I mean, just this year there was another Brian Laundrie, Gabby Petito Lifetime movie or something that came out, and like, that literally just happened, that death just, just occurred. We all watched it very recently on the news. We don't need a new dramatization of it, but people are very eager to exploit these tragedies for moolah, so we keep getting more shit. 
including also like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial is now being dramatized in another TV movie. And that is really weird because that whole saga is not even over. Amber is still going forward with the appeals process. So, I mean, like, literally just wait. You're that desperate for money, you can't just wait, like, a year to make your movie? It seems silly. But that's it. I mean, true crime is kind of by nature exploitative. Even at the best end, even the best made, most ethical documentaries are, in essence, taking a tragic situation and making it into entertainment for a general public. And there's always going to be some amount of exploitation involved in that. And that doesn't always make a net negative. Sometimes it can be a net positive, but it's always there. So there is an increased debate about the ethics around true crime. There are many problematic aspects of it, and a lot of it depends on the specific content that we're talking about, but true crime can do a lot of harm in society. For instance, other than just the exploitation, it can also have the effect of giving people a really distorted idea of how commonplace certain events are. I mean, when I'm referring to true crime here, I'm mostly referring to things that revolve around murder or rape or some sort of violent crime like that, but there also is a subgenre of true crime that's more based on financial crimes or people who were the victims of some sort of con artist. There's lots of crime out there, and you can make movies and documentaries and write books about really any of it. But a disproportionate amount of true crime is based specifically on murder and violent crimes, and even more specifically, a much more disproportionate amount is based on serial killers. And I mean disproportionate compared to the amount of serial killers that actually exist. Quite a lot of true crime focuses on a very, very small amount of the crime that just exists in the world. And if you watch a lot of true crime, you might start to get an idea of the world as being a lot more dangerous than it actually is, or at least dangerous in ways that it typically is not you are probably not going to be killed by a serial killer. Your chances are very, very low, so don't worry. You're way more likely to be murdered by someone you know. Trust no one. No, but really, you're probably not going to be murdered at all. You're probably going to die of heart disease or in a car accident. Who knows how you'll die? It could happen at any moment. And the fact that we all know that, that we are all going to die someday, and we don't know when, where, how, why, or at the hands of whom, is probably one of the reasons that true crime is as popular as it is, because the fact that we are all mortal is scary. It's scary to live in a human body that could be theoretically dismembered. I mean, I, I know that it's a hard thing to acknowledge, but sometimes, the way we might choose to acknowledge that fact is by watching things that depict horrible things happening to other people. It's not a schadenfreude kind of thing, at least not for most people, I don't think. But it's more of a catharsis 
that you can look at something and confront the danger of mortality and of being a human being amongst other human beings who sometimes do weird things that we can't explain. And you can confront it in a safe space, like, oh yeah, I could be killed, but for right now I'm not being killed. I'm just watching something about being killed. And I can turn off the TV if I want to. I have control at this moment. And who knows when I'll have control in other moments. Sorry that this intro is kind of doom and gloom, but... I do just want to emphasize why people watch true crime. It's not that we're all just sick and we like to see other people being tortured or killed or assaulted. There is like a real emotional need for a lot of people to just confront the things that scare them. I mean, the entire genre of horror exists for a reason. People go to haunted houses for a reason. It has an emotional value and it's not all bad. There's a lot of variance in true crime content. Some of it may, yes, be exploitative to the victims. I mean, all of it is some level of exploitative. But there are also true crime documentaries, like maybe Surviving R. Kelly would be a good big example that I think a lot of people are aware of, where that was an opportunity for the victims to come forward and talk about their trauma. Or there's some true crime that glorifies or overemphasizes the investigative efforts of police who are not always on the right side of history. But there's also plenty of true crime content that actually points out the ineffectiveness of a lot of police officers and specifically in the monster Jeffrey Dahmer too long of a title show they actually bring up something that I think should be talked about more in conversations about how police in America get away with doing a lot of stupid and or just straight up horrible, evil, terrible shit, and that's police unions. I don't see a whole lot of popular media talking about how police unions specifically are the cause for a lot of police officers to get away with shit that they should not have been doing, including sometimes murdering citizens. Entertainment plays a huge role in the general public consciousness and the awareness that Americans have of issues in their own country. So a really popular Netflix show talking about how police unions are actually really fucking citizens over I love that, really. I think that's great, even if there are other problems in the show. And there's plenty of other examples of TV shows that talk about real crimes that take on some systemic issues in America. For instance, the ESPN documentary docuseries about O.J. Simpson, I think it was called Made in America, that has a really great emphasis on how the LAPD and the general fuckery that they get up to really contributed to O.J. Simpson getting away with murder because there was a huge problem with the LAPD targeting black people, black men specifically, and that was used against the prosecutors in that case to get O.J. acquitted. 
because there was just too much distrust of the LAPD, much of which was totally valid. The LAPD fucking sucks. OJ did still kill someone, though. Anyway, since a lot of us do still enjoy true crime, its flaws acknowledged, I have decided to create a list of true crime content that you can consume without totally hating yourself and feeling like a piece of shit for doing it. I have made the title of this episode, True Crime You Can Watch, but actually I've got two books on this list. Uh, we're super smart here and we read books. Sometimes. I actually, both of these books I listen to on Audible, but it, it still counts, right? Let's get into it. I am going to start with one of those books. Uh, it's not like about a specific true crime story or murder or anything specific, but I did just want to give this book a shout out for the people who like true crime and maybe have some feminist leanings. This is a book by Jude Doyle. If you look up the book, it is going to be under their dead name because Jude did transition after writing this. So I am going to say what their dead name is. Normally I wouldn't, but it's still published under this name and it's just going to be the easiest way for you to find it. It is by Sadie Doyle and it is called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. It talks about the appeal of true crime for women specifically, and it also goes into how women have been treated as somewhat monstrous throughout our history, and specifically in relation to serial killers, one of the examples that is given in the book is the murderer Ed Gein, who, even if you don't know his name, he is what a lot of serial killers in movies and TV shows that are fictionalized are based off of. So, um, what's that one guy from? Oh, Buffalo Bill. So, like, Buffalo Bill's based off of him. The main guy in Psycho, Norman Bates. There's a killer in a season of Desperate Housewives that's based off of him, and it drives me fucking insane. I hate that season so much. But anyway... Ed Gein was a serial killer. He was the guy who did, like, you know, lampshades made of human skin and stuff like that. And one of the reasons that people have given for why he was so psychotic and violent and a murderer is because he was abused by his mother when he was a child, which has been a bit exaggerated. Not going to say that Ed Gein's mother was perfect. She definitely wasn't. And there was a lot of abuse in the household, plenty of which was inflicted by Augusta Gein. But also there was abuse that was inflicted onto Ed and his siblings by his father. And Daddy Gein doesn't ever really get brought up at all. A lot of the blame gets placed onto Augusta. And there's a lot of mythology that surrounds that case that we don't really have any evidence of. There's a lot of stuff that's been alleged about the way that Augusta supposedly abused Ed and, let's just say, sources needed for some of those allegations. But sources weren't really needed to proliferate the idea that the reason Ed Gein was a psychopathic killer is because it's his mom's fault, you know? Women, women should just raise their kids better. There is a lot of misogyny in how that story has gotten told and retold over and over again. 
in fictional media. I mean, when you watch a movie or TV show or something where there is a somewhat like sympathetic, sensitive boy serial killer, notice how often his mom is abusive in those stories. It's a really good trope to just blame the atrocities of men on the women that raised them. And that specifically happens in Desperate Housewives, despite it being a show that was supposedly being marketed toward mothers. It just blames one of the characters for her son fucking murdering women. Anyway, I'm, I'm not talking about Desperate Housewives today, but it's a good book. I recommend it. Now, this next one, I'm gonna give, like, a pretty tepid recommendation for because I don't love the documentary itself, but I don't know of any other content that covers this case that does it well, so this is all I got. Uh, the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix. If you are young enough to remember, which I barely am, Amanda Knox was a young woman who was falsely accused of murdering her roommate when she went on a trip to Italy as a foreign exchange student in the late 2000s, I think like 2007. She was charged and tried for the crime. She spent about four years in prison and she didn't do it. She did not murder her roommate. It caused a huge international controversy, and in 2013, she was released and found, I guess, not guilty. She was acquitted, but then there was, like, a whole thing, and they found her guilty again, and then that got overturned. It doesn't even matter. What matters is that in 2013, she came home to the U.S., and I do remember that happening, but I was pretty young at the time. I mean, I mean, how old was I? I was, like, 17 when she came back to the U.S., but when the murder took place and the original trial took place, I was probably like 11 to 14-ish. So I had no idea who Amanda Knox was when she came back to the U.S. I think that I thought she was like held political prisoner or something in Italy. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I think that the Netflix documentary could have been better. I think it could have explored some of its themes in a lot more depth. I think it could have focused on the victim a lot more. I mean, I get that the noteworthy thing about this case is the fact that Amanda was accused and charged with a crime that she didn't commit. But it would have been nice to hear from the family of Meredith, the girl who was, you know, murdered and is now dead. Because even though I don't agree with Meredith's family, who definitely does seem to still believe that Amanda Knox is responsible for Meredith's death, I think that they are going through something that is very traumatic and I can understand why they would be frustrated that the person who had originally been put into prison because she supposedly killed Meredith, I mean, it makes sense that they would be upset that she was released. So it would have been nice to at least hear from them and hear from the people that are grieving the death of their loved one. Even if Amanda is grieving the loss of four years of her life, 
Which is significant. I mean, even more than four years, because she has to deal with that trauma for the rest of her life. But still, can we say that she's the primary victim of this situation when there is a girl who was killed? Eh. But there are some really important themes that surround this case that are very important for us to take into consideration while looking at other cases and trying to decide if other people are guilty or not guilty of something. So, for instance, the coercive interrogation tactics that were used against Amanda Knox to get her to say things that weren't really accurate because she was kind of being manipulated into giving out certain bits of information that she would not have otherwise given and, in a way, kind of perjured herself. Because I don't think people realize that if you're being interrogated and interrogated in some very intimidating and manipulative ways, you will eventually say things that aren't necessarily true and that aren't even in your best interest just to appease the people who are questioning you. That's something that actually happens quite a lot. There are a lot of false confessions to crimes because the people who are investigating said crimes sometimes already have an idea of what they want the people they're interrogating to say and will use very coercive tactics to get them to say those things until they're put in a corner and they have to confess to something that they didn't necessarily do. For instance, though this isn't related to any sort of violent crime or anything, if you remember the story from the mid-2010s-ish about the boy, uh, he's known as Balloon Boy. He was this kid who his dad thought that he had gone into this big, like, helium balloon and the balloon went off into the air, as balloons do. And then the dad called the police and he called some media people, like news, local news organizations, and got them to search for their kid with helicopters, and then it turned out that the kid was in the family's attic the whole time, and then everyone thought that it was a hoax to get onto TV or get a reality show, and people thought that for like a really, really long time, and maybe even still do if they haven't done more research into the entire debacle. There's an interesting video on it on YouTube it's uh, by the Internet Historian. If you go and search that, it's Balloon Boy, The Untold Story. But I bring this up because eventually the father pled guilty to creating this hoax because the sheriff who had been overseeing that case and speaking to the media about it was running for re-election and the case had just become so big in the media and was being covered all over on like Larry King Live and Wolf Blitzer and everything, he realized that there was a lot of attention being placed onto this balloon boy thing and he knew that it was going to make him a lot more popular if he got this guy to go to jail and plead guilty to the charges against him. So what he did in order to get the father in this case to plead guilty to something he still to this day maintains he didn't actually do is he low-key threatened to deport his wife, who was an immigrant from Japan. So 
yeah, I, people can get you to confess to a crime you didn't commit using some pretty tricky maneuvers. And there certainly appeared to be some ego-driven prosecutors in the Amanda Knox case, especially because, again, the media was all over this story. It was being broadcast everywhere, not just in Italy, but here in America, too, because Amanda was one of our own. She was an American. And the victim, Meredith, was from the UK, so all eyes were on this case, and he took advantage of that by making a name for himself in a case with a woman who didn't do the thing that he prosecuted her for doing. Now, why did they think that Amanda Knox killed her roommate? Some of the reason came down to improper use of DNA evidence and cross-contamination, pretty much. Forensic science is a very, very delicate matter. And forensic analysis is not always super reliable. And when you're using DNA evidence, you gotta be really, really careful. You gotta change your gloves. You gotta make sure that you're not touching shit and then touching other shit. You gotta take into consideration why someone's DNA might be on something for reasons outside of committing crimes, you know? Of course, Amanda Knox's DNA was on some stuff within the apartment that Meredith died in because Amanda also lived there. We as lay people sometimes put a lot of faith into professionals like investigators, detectives, scientists, doctors, police, and while being an expert in a certain field should be something that is taken seriously and we should be respecting people who have a significant amount of knowledge in a specific field, human beings are still human beings and they're not infallible. Being overly skeptical can put us in the land of conspiracy theories and paranoia, but not being skeptical enough can mean that we are just relying on expert opinion without properly checking to make sure that the experts we're relying on are following the procedures that they are supposed to be following and are acting with acknowledgement for their capacity to make mistakes. The other reason that people thought Amanda was guilty is just really because she's weird. I mean, not like super weird, she's mostly normal, but right after the murder, there was some footage of Amanda and her lover at the time, her Italian boyfriend, and they were kissing, like, right outside the crime scene while investigators were going through and combing for evidence. And yeah, it was kind of weird that she didn't seem more sad or freaked out. She was just kissing her boyfriend. It's not like she was making out with him, to be clear. They just kissed, like, a little. It wasn't a huge deal. But yeah, she wasn't crying or seemingly super shocked. But also, let's remember that this was her roommate. And her roommate in a foreign exchange student program, it wasn't like they were besties. I don't believe there's any reason to think that they didn't get along. But still, I don't think they knew each other that well. And different people deal with traumatic situations differently. Just because Amanda wasn't falling to her knees sobbing 
Doesn't mean she wasn't sad or freaked out. I don't know how I would react in a situation like that. I've never been in one. So a lot of the guilty verdict really just came down to body language analysis, which if you've been listening to other episodes of this podcast, you will know that I am not a fan of body language analysis, really don't like it, and really don't think that it should be given enough weight to deem someone guilty of a crime, especially a crime like murder. Along with that, as tends to happen with body language analysis, there was a lot of misogyny mixed into the rhetoric around Amanda Knox. She had a journal that she had been writing in her jail cell, I think, because uh, <laughs> this was really fucked up. Um, they told her that she had tested positive for a sexually transmitted disease, even though she hadn't. And so she was writing down a list of like all the people that she had slept with, trying to figure out who she had gotten it from or who she could have given it to. And then the the count of the men was used against her to slut shame her pretty much. And from there developed this weird theory of how she and her Italian lover had murdered Meredith because Meredith called her a slut. It was weird. It was a lot of speculative reasoning. It, it just got odd. The amount of men that Amanda slept with should not have been relevant to her committing murder at all. But we as people in a patriarchal society just don't trust women who enjoy having sex with multiple men. So they had to fit it into the narrative somehow. They couldn't just let it go unacknowledged that Amanda Knox was a big ol' slut. We have to find some way to slut shame her while accusing her of murder. And by the way, she only had sex with like seven guys and she was 20 at the time. So yeah, probably more than the average 20 year old, but also, I mean, seven. That's the number so absurd and shocking that it got a woman convicted of killing her roommate? Seven is enough to make you a crazed sex fiend who would kill someone for calling her a slut? Okay. But yeah, if, if anyone knows any other documentaries or books or anything related to the Amanda Knox case that's maybe a little bit more in-depth than the Netflix doc, uh, please let me know. I know Amanda has a memoir, but I didn't read that because I don't care that much about, like, you know, the rest of her life. I just want to know more about, like, the investigation and stuff. So, I don't know. A memoir to me sounds like it's going to be about boring stuff, too, and I don't want to read that. Going along with the theme of how a case's outcome can be affected by publicity and the media, there is a good miniseries on Netflix called Trial by Media, and it's just what it sounds like. There's six episodes, each about like an hour, hour and a half maybe, so pretty short little series. I kind of wish that they would make more I don't think that there's any plans to because it came out in 2020 
So I would assume that if there was going to be another batch of episodes, they would have come out in 2021, and they have not. So I think this is done, but it follows a couple different cases from the 1980s is where it starts, and then it goes into the 2000s a bit. And yeah, it just follows a few different cases that had their outcomes affected by the media that surrounded the case. And it's really interesting because it covers issues of homophobia in the first episode and also a lot, a lot of issues related to race and how we as a society depict certain people in a certain light and other people in a different kind of light and how that can affect the way that we prosecute certain crimes with certain kinds of victims. There are like two episodes that aren't actually about murder. They're about financial crimes or some sort of political corruption. And those are like whatever. Don't get me wrong, that shit's important too. And there are definitely victims of financial crimes. And those victims can have their lives ruined in a way that is basically akin to violence. But... As far as my own ability to focus, I can follow a story about a murder pretty easily, no matter how much active attention I'm paying to it. Because if you tell me that someone stabbed someone else, I know what that means automatically. If you start using words like racketeering and extortion to me, I... I kind of know what those words mean, but I don't really understand what the impact necessarily is. I just know killing bad. And the way that the show handles depicting the more direct violence of, you know, murder is pretty good. Not only is the focus of the entire series on the more systemic issues and the problems within how real-life events are portrayed in real time, and that in itself gives the show a value outside of just the catharsis of true crime. It is also pretty respectful to the victims. A lot of the victims' family members do take part in the documentary. There's one victim whose mom is in an episode, and oh my god. I have so much respect and admiration for this mother, and I am just so devastated for her loss. Like, you can really feel it. I mean, oh, some things are hard to listen to, but still necessary to know about. And continuing to run off this theme of the media fucking shit up, I have a book to recommend. It's called... Columbine? Do you think you could guess what it's about? Oh, you guessed correctly. You're so smart. It's called Columbine. That's the entire title. It's by David Cullen. I really, really like this book. It is available on Audible, and I really, really like the author because I've listened to him in a couple interviews. I listened to him after I read the book, and... The book is written very professionally, and everything is laid out really matter-of-factly, the way that you would lay out a story of this kind as a journalist. 
But getting to hear him in interviews be so animated and also so angry about the way that the Columbine shooting was covered, it's just so refreshing. I love hearing people who are really passionate about something, and especially when they're passionate in a way that they're just annoyed about something, and the amount that he is annoyed about how myths around the Columbine shooting were able to be perpetuated, it's it's good. I like it. And I know that he's continued to do more work in regards to school shootings, because Columbine was a school shooting, if you didn't know. One of the first really big ones, and that's one of the reasons that there are a lot of myths surrounding it, because it being one of the first of its kind to become a national news story, people didn't really know how to approach the story, and there was a lot of guesswork involved in trying to figure out the killer's motives that led to a lot of different explanations for the murders that don't really seem to be rooted in that much fact. But anyway, I know that David Cullen wrote another book about Parkland and the anti-gun movement that arose from that. So I haven't read that yet, but there is continued coverage on school shootings from Mr. Cullen that I will be checking out eventually. But I really think that his work on Columbine is really imperative not just to understanding the Columbine tragedy specifically, but understanding how that tragedy acts as a touchstone, essentially, for analyzing how not to cover an event that is unfolding in real time. And the importance of that is not only relevant to how we talk about and cover true crime or crimes of violence or even crimes, period. It's relevant to how we talk about literally fucking everything, including, like, all of us, not just the media with a capital M, but all of us who have a Twitter account and have fucking Instagrams and Facebooks. I mean, I think we're all aware at this point of how disinformation can be spread on fucking Facebook specifically. God, I hate that website. But we all have a part to play to ensure that the information that we are spreading is as accurate and as responsibly communicated as we can manage. We can be considerate to the fact that the average citizen doesn't necessarily have the best fact-checking skills or isn't trained on how to parse information the same way that journalists might be, but I've been on Twitter recently, and you know what? A lot of us can do better. We can all do a lot better, and that's me included. I know that I've shared things that I did not actually look at any sources for before I shared it because it was just too good of gossip and it was too sensational and fun to not retweet, but I've been seeing some shit getting shared on my timeline recently where I'm like, oh, 
That's interesting. I hadn't heard about that. Let me just look into it a little bit. And then I find no fucking sources for any of the shit that people are spreading. And it's starting to really piss me off. For example, how fucking old is Billy Ray Cyrus's girlfriend? I don't know. Everyone keeps saying that he met her when she was 13. And while I'm not saying that that's not true, I have searched multiple websites and have seen different speculations from she's in her early 20s to she's 34. And given the timeline of when they would have met, that is a massive difference as to whether or not she was a literal minor when they met. And no one can fucking tell me how old this bitch is, but everyone on my timeline is calling Billy Ray Cyrus a pedophile. And I'm just asking for a source. It's all I want is just a fucking source. How old is Billy Ray Cyrus's girlfriend? Why does no one know? And why is everyone tweeting that she's younger than Miley Cyrus without any evidence? Anyway. Next recommendation is a documentary that will definitely make you cry. I watched this at work, which is where I watch a lot of stuff. Most of my job just involves filing and organizing papers, so as long as I don't have to look at a screen too long, I can listen to pretty much anything I want. And I had to, like, step out and go on my break kind of early when I watched this documentary because, oh my god, it's so sad. So this one is called Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. So... The victim in this case is Zachary's father. And this is a really interesting documentary because it actually wasn't meant to be shared with a general audience when it was first being made. It was just supposed to be for Zachary, the son of Andrew, who was killed, and then also other members of Andrew's family. It's just meant to remember Andrew with. But... As the documentary went on and as they were making it, which took a couple years, and I say they, it really was just one guy. It was made by Andrew's best friend, which is pretty impressive. If you go to the Wikipedia page or the IMDb page or anything that has the credits on it, and it's this one guy's name just over and over and over again, like music by, edited by, cinematography by... And while it does have, like, kind of an amateur-ish vibe to it, it is definitely very good for one person to make. And I think that the amateur aspect of it actually makes it feel a lot more intimate because, in a way, it just feels like you're watching home videos. Him going around interviewing different people who knew Andrew and who could speak to him as a person... And it, it makes it all the more sad because it doesn't feel like you're watching a Netflix doc or anything, because you're not. It feels like you're watching someone's home movie of a family that's grieving the loss of a loved one. And it's, it's real sad. But as he was making it, there were a lot of different legal matters that were in the process of being taken care of. And as that went on and got a little bit more complicated, 
and just generally fucked up. The whole movie starts to shift from being centered around Zachary and Andrew as a person, and it starts to be about some of the major flaws in our justice system, which is important to all of us. And one thing that I really appreciate about this documentary is that it not only focuses on extreme failures and extreme problems, but it also documents the mundane annoyance involved in pursuing any sort of legal matter. Like, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a lawsuit before, but they're a pain in the ass. I've never been directly involved in one, but I know people who have been, and they take forever. They are expensive, and sometimes people can manipulate situations in ways that there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way that the system is set up, and that is specifically related to time and money. Something that some people will do, and anyone who was a part of the Free Britney movement probably knows this, is they will make specific moves that just delay court decisions just over and over and over and over again to continue making money off of something that they probably shouldn't be making money off of, or to maybe even try to get the issue dropped. So I know someone personally who was once in a lawsuit against a business, a company that had quite a lot of money to just throw at a situation, and that company purposefully kept dragging out the court process because they knew that the person that I knew personally was going to have to keep paying their attorneys no matter what. You have to continue paying your lawyers, you have to continue paying for court fees and any other legal costs that come along with the lawsuit, and they do that so that eventually you'll just drop your suit because you're depleted of money and resources. It's fucked up, and it happens all the time. And I don't see a lot of movies or documentaries talking about that. Usually in any sort of true crime thing, they'll go from covering the death itself and then covering maybe parts of the investigation, but then they'll just go straight forward to the trial and whether or not someone is deemed guilty or not guilty. And that's not how it works in real life. You have to go through months, if not years, of assorted bullshit that's mostly just irritating and boring. Of course, the hope is that if someone is being tried for something like murder, that they will be in jail before their trial. But there's also still issues with that, and... Sometimes people can get let out on bail for really stupid reasons. I mean, bail as a concept is already ridiculous. You should not be able to just pay your way out of getting to jail. It is just something that inherently creates class division, because if some people can literally just pay their way out of doing time and other people's cannot, then the law affects the different classes differently. But whatever. 
One of the cool things about this documentary is that it does talk a lot about issues with bail. And in addition to just talking about it, number one, all of the profits from the documentary actually went to scholarships in the name of Zachary and Andrew. And it also had a very large impact on Canadian laws. So this is really cool. As part of a campaign to change the federal bail laws in Canada, the director sent a copy of the DVD for the documentary to 400 members of Canada's parliament, and then that introduced a bill that became known as Zachary's Bill, which was then signed into law in 2010. So, very cool. We love that. We love legislation that is introduced for the common good. And if you want more insight into what that bill specifically was trying to address and why the filmmaker felt so passionate about it, you can watch Dear Zachary. It's on Amazon Prime, or you could just buy it because, you know, it's worth the money. And then when you're done watching it, you can watch a short documentary follow-up that was uploaded to YouTube in 2013. It's called The Legacy of Dear Zachary, A Journey to Change the Law. Switching gears from that one, let's go from a documentary about a father for his son to a docu-series about a son who killed his father. This one is called I Just Killed My Father. It's on Netflix. It's three parts. And it's, it's what it sounds like. It's about a young man who killed his dad. And while that sounds really, really bad, once you watch enough of the docu-series, you're not going to feel that bad for the dad. I won't spoil it too much, but... Let's just say I'm not mad at the guy. This one's pretty new, so I don't want to go into it too much, because again, don't want to spoil. But what I do like about it is that the series focuses quite a bit on the dynamics of abuse, and it's really sympathetic to the victims of abuse and the tough decisions that they sometimes have to make. You know, including... A little, a little shooting someone multiple times every once in a while. Not that I condone murder, but do what you gotta do. And I also like that this documentary, as dark as it is, has a kind of happy ending. I mean, I was smiling by the end of the film, so... If you want a true crime doc that's not gonna leave you totally hating the world there you go oh and also another thing that this documentary does that i think is cool it has a mock trial that it shows because the defense wanted to run over their case and make sure that they had everything all their ducks in a row to win the trial and I thought that was kind of cool to see because the attorney talks about some of the different methods and some of the different ways that you can try to get a jury on your side. And that was really interesting. I'd love to be a jury member on a mock trial. 
Because then you could, like, kind of play like you're on a jury and make decisions and look at evidence and stuff and be all analytical, but also no decision you make is actually going to affect anyone's life forever. So, you know, kind of best of both worlds. Oh, I'd hate to send someone to prison for something they didn't do. It'd be a real bummer. If watching a documentary about someone who killed another person makes you uncomfortable, though, how do you feel about a documentary about the parents of someone who murdered someone? Because that's going to impact the next two recommendations. So the first one is actually just an A&E special. It's an hour and a half long, and it is called Casey Anthony's Parents Speak. Nice, just straight-to-the-point title. No fucking monster, M-dash, Dahmer colon bullshit. Now, I'm assuming I don't have to tell you who Casey Anthony is. I think she's one of those killers that's just so infamous that pretty much everyone knows who she is. But just in case, Casey Anthony is a woman who, while being acquitted of the crime, she was found not guilty, she definitely did murder her daughter. No question about it. 100%. I, I, she can sue me for that if she wants. I 100% believe she killed her daughter, and if you look into the case, you'll think so too. It's truly absurd that she got away with this, but oh well. You don't have to know too much about the case to watch this A&E special, though I do think it probably would help, just in that it would deepen your understanding of what these parents are going through and what their current viewpoint says about their psychology and how they've been dealing with this trauma. So I think that there is an inclination for a lot of people when someone turns out to be as heartless as Casey Anthony to just blame her parents and say that, well, there must have been signs that she was capable of doing what she did, or they must have raised her to be such a monster. And I don't think that's fair. There are definitely things that you can look at with how her parents raised her and say like, oh yeah, I mean, you can see there that she had some problematic behaviors. She definitely did lie a lot in her youth, but still... Plenty of people lie and don't murder their own children. So I really don't think that we can say that anyone should have seen this coming. I don't see any reason why someone would see it coming. As far as I'm aware, there was nothing in her childhood that indicated she was capable of this kind of crime. And I really do feel awful for her parents especially because they are the most direct victims of this situation that are still living. Kaylee Anthony, Casey's daughter, was the primary victim, but she's not here anymore. And the people who are left to actually deal with all the grief, 
are Casey's parents, and other members of her family too, but primarily them, and it was them who originally started the search for Kaylee when they originally believed that she was missing. And she was missing, because nobody but Casey knew where she was, but, you know, she was also dead. And Casey really doesn't seem to have all that much remorse for what happened, so it's mostly just Casey's parents that are left dealing with all of the pain from that incident, and it's awful. The A&E special was filmed around the 10th anniversary of Kaylee's death, and while that sounds like it could be some exploitative piece of trash television, it actually is a really good look into the grieving process, because you get to see how the parents of Casey Anthony are grieving Kaylee and also their previous relationship with their daughter differently. The father said that he was really in pain and really in the depths of his grief pretty immediately, whereas Casey's mother said that it actually took a while for her to feel the weight of her grief because while she felt it here and there throughout the first couple years, it didn't really hit her until the trial that was deciding the fate of Casey Anthony was over. And that makes sense. If you were in some way being distracted by a trial that was determining the fate of your child in the first couple years after you discovered that your granddaughter had died, I get how that might delay the grieving process for you, and I also get how it would hit you right away, like it did for the father, because it was pretty gruesome to hear that the remains of your granddaughter were found buried by a road. And even now, the two grieve differently. The mother likes to look at photos and reminisce, and the father prefers not to. And... That's totally natural for both of them. Nobody grieves the same way. In fact, those, like, seven stages of grief are kind of a myth. Shit's way more complicated than that. It also raises some questions about the emotional ramifications of loving a killer. Because even if your daughter did something really, really horrible, you still spent a majority of her life loving her. It would be really hard to just turn all that off after you've spent quite a lot of your own time raising her to just go, okay, never mind, she sucks. Even if she does really, really suck. Along with that is the intense media coverage that this case got and how that affected how these two were able to grieve for their granddaughter and how they've been able to move on or not move on from her death because everywhere they go, people know that they are the parents of Casey Anthony. And like I said, for some people, that really affects the amount of sympathy they are able to give them. There's an assumption that someone who raises a monster must also be a monster. And I don't think that that's true. I don't think that these two are monsters. But you get little glimpses into their struggles to confront 
the truth of the situation and try to figure out how what happened happened and how their daughter became the person that she became. And what's especially fascinating to me about this entire special is that you really get a sense of the dynamic between the parents at this point because they have some pretty different perspectives on the case. The mother still thinks that Casey didn't kill her daughter, and that's... that's wild. But it goes to show how much loving someone can cloud your vision of who they actually are, even when confronted with pretty, pretty convincing evidence. There's a scene where one of the people on the um, prosecutor side, I don't remember if it was actually like the prosecutor or if it was just an attorney or something, but he brought to their attention that since the trial ended, they found even more evidence of Casey's guilt, including a search that was made on the home computer that Casey used that was... um foolproof suffocation method and it was searched the day before Kaylee Anthony died and then once the police started to investigate the crime that search history was deleted and yeah the dad thinks that it could have been someone other than Casey because she did have someone else with her around that time and he thinks that maybe it was her friend that searched it and the mom just seems to not even be able to process the information as incriminating to her daughter she just still believes that her daughter drowned accidentally in a pool which is what casey eventually said after lying many many times about what her daughter was up to because at first she said that she was, like, with a babysitter, and the name that she gave for the babysitter was someone that just didn't even exist, and that it was the shared babysitter of one of her co-workers who she hadn't worked with in, like, years and didn't know her really at all. It was a whole mess. Casey Anthony is just an absolutely ridiculous person, and I feel really, really bad for her mother, because her mother seems totally unable to accept that her daughter definitely murdered her own daughter. I mean, the mom's daughter murdered Casey's daughter, a.k.a. the mom's grandchild. And Casey also, like, tried to frame her dad. She said that her dad knew that Kaylee had drowned in the pool and helped her hide the body or something, and she accused her father of molesting her as a child. Now, I'm gonna go and say that 100% certain he had nothing to do with Kaylee's death. There's just so much evidence to the contrary. And I'm also going to say that he probably didn't molest Casey. Normally, I take a believe victim stance but uh, Casey Anthony is the exception to that. So even though Casey's mom doesn't think that she murdered Kaylee, she does think that Casey at least accused her own husband of doing shit that he didn't do, which is still really fucked up. And still she has some contact with Casey 
pretty minimal, but enough to exemplify how much she must have really loved her daughter. Which makes you question, is unconditional love, like, really a good thing? But there is something bitterly sweet about the bond between the mother and the father portrayed on this documentary, because while they bicker a lot and they have a lot of disagreements about what happened and disagreements about their own daughter, they also are still there for each other, despite having been separated a little bit before the murder. Because at this point, they're just trauma-bonded. There's no one else in the world that understands what they went through like each other. So, it's nice that they at least have that, right? I mean, what else would they have if not one another? I don't know. Just watch it. It was an A&E special. I think you can watch it on Hulu. I'm not 100% sure. It's worth it wherever you can find it, though. The next documentary is on HBO. It's called Beware the Slender Man. It focuses on the attempted murder of a young girl by her two friends. This was also a media sensation at the time. Not quite as big as something like the Casey Anthony case, but these two young girls stabbed their friend multiple times. Let me look up. I gotta look up how many times they stabbed her because it actually was really, really ridiculous. 19 times. They stabbed her 19 times. They were attempting to sacrifice her to Slenderman under the belief that if they didn't, he was going to kill them and their entire families. Their thought process isn't 100% clear, but also they were children and also obviously very mentally ill. I tried to look up what the victim thought of this documentary because she's not a part of it at all, nor are her parents. It's primarily looking at the two girls who killed or attempted to kill her, and then it interviews their parents. I couldn't find anything, though. I don't know if she approved of it being made or if she was upset about it. So if you only feel comfortable watching something that's 100% approved by the victim's living family members or the victims themselves, keep that in mind. Don't know what the situation with this documentary was, but you can at least be soothed by the fact that the young girl who was stabbed is still alive. She did an interview that I read. Again, it didn't mention anything about this documentary, which I wanted to know about, but it was nice to hear from her nonetheless. I'm glad she's doing well. And I really, I hate to harp on it too much, but like, 19 stab wounds? And 19 for like a little girl, too. Like, she was around 12, 13, middle school age. How many places can you be stabbed at that age? You've only got so much surface area. And she was stabbed and then left in the woods for a while. The two girls went off telling her that they were going to go find help. Of course, they were not. And then she had to crawl her way to a road where a biker found her. And she lived. Anyway, the reason that this attempted murder got so much media coverage 
is not just because it was a stabbing committed by two young girls, two young girls that had no history of violence. And like with Casey Anthony, there weren't any signs prior that this was a possibility, that these people were capable of murdering their friend. But on top of that, they were trying to sacrifice their friend for Slenderman. And if you don't know, Slenderman is not a real person. He's never been a real person. He is a fictional character that originates from internet memes and the copypasta community, or creepypasta in this case. So... Creepypasta, variant of copypasta, and what copypasta is, it takes its name from the actual action of copy and paste. Get it? Copy-paste? Copy-paste-a? Copy-pasta? It just means that there are stories on the internet that get copied and pasted with different variations across the internet. You take stock characters, essentially, like Slenderman, or another example would be Jeff the Killer. And he's based off of this one photo of, like, a distorted image of someone smiling really big. There's also a creepypasta version of Sonic the Hedgehog, even though I don't know how you could make Sonic the Hedgehog scary. Like, I just don't take the characters seriously enough to do that. But also, this shit is really popular with children, so I guess I'm just not the target audience. Creepypastas are kind of like the modern version of urban legends like Bloody Mary, though. That would kind of be the most comparable thing that I could think of that's not super internet-y. But the distinction between a creepypasta character and someone like Bloody Mary is that there are really specific communities that are much more accessible for Slenderman or Jeff the Killer or someone like him because it's the internet. And what the internet does is it gives people access to very niche communities. So... The mythology around these characters can start to build upon itself in a really rapid way and can be really niche and differentiated from other versions of that character. So there might be some people who think of Slenderman as a specifically scary villain and someone who would kill you and haunt your dreams or something. I think that he's... Similar to the Pied Piper, he's supposed to, like, kidnap children. But then there are other versions of Slenderman where he's good and he actually is someone who stands up to bullies and is an aid to children who feel left out in situations. So your conception of a creepypasta character depends a lot upon the specific rabbit holes that you end up falling down. And those rabbit holes probably depend a lot on where you're at in your life and how you conceptualize yourself. That opens up a lot of questions about the effects of the internet on children, especially children who don't have a super robust social life. Some of them may 
fall down rabbit holes in which they start to believe that Slender Man is a real person. Other children who don't have a lot of friends and are really introverted and spend a lot of time on the internet may grow up to host a podcast by themselves. Uh, which is worse, I don't know, but both definitely raise concerns of their own. Now, clearly, it's not just any children that will start to believe at 12 years old that Slender Man is a real person, and he is so real, in fact, that if you don't kill your friend, he'll kill your whole family. Yeah, it, it takes a particular kind of child for that to happen. And so the other thing that this documentary addresses is mental health. Neither of these kids wanted to stab their friend because they were evil or because they disliked her at all. They stabbed her because they genuinely believed that if they didn't, Slender Man was going to come after them and their families. One of the girls was eventually diagnosed as schizophrenic. The other, I'm not sure if she ever had a specific diagnosis. Regardless, mentally stable children generally don't try to kill other children. I mean, the same could be said about adults, but at least adults have more time to get their shit together. So we feel a lot better about holding them accountable for their actions. So while the internet is not specifically to blame for the crimes committed by these two girls, the documentary does still raise some good questions about what impact can the internet have on developing brains that are not yet at the stage where they can even understand themselves. If you knew that your child had schizophrenia, you probably wouldn't let them just browse the internet unsupervised. But schizophrenic children don't come out of the womb with a convenient label. You're not gonna know what kind of stimuli your child is particularly vulnerable to until possibly it's too late. I don't want to sound too doom and gloom about the internet, because I'm here all day, but also, I'm here all day, and it is scary. <laughs> And it's not something that I think a lot of people from my parents' generation or possibly even my generation of millennials really understands how the landscape of social media is going to affect the brains of the generations below us. I mean, it took so long for people to figure out that cigarettes can cause cancer. The internet is super new in terms of the entire evolution of humanity. And it has very quickly changed our perceptions of the entire world. So that shouldn't be taken lightly. I'm reading a book right now about the science of sex and gender. And one of the things that it talks about is how fucking malleable babies' brains are and how immediately receptive they are to stimuli, and it's kind of terrifying. They're picking up on social cues in the womb. So who's to say what sticking a fucking smartphone in the hands of a baby is gonna do for their overall development? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Maybe we'll get lucky and climate change will just put us out of our misery before we have to find out? Anyway, my next recommendation is a Hulu series 
that similarly follows a young girl, a child. This time, she may be responsible for murder, or she may not be. You get to decide. Actually, the law already did decide that she's guilty of not murder, but manslaughter. I personally don't really agree with that verdict, but I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it. I am a very opinionated person overall, and most of the time, once I form an opinion, I am very, very certain that I am correct and that the people who disagree with me are wrong. This is one of the rare cases, though, where the issue at the center of this is morally ambiguous enough that I can't claim to have the definitive answer as much as I would like to. So the series is called The Girl from Plainville. It is a dramatization of real events. If you want to watch a documentary, there's a two-part documentary on HBO about the same case, and it's called I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth vs. Michelle Carter. I believe that the Hulu series is actually directly inspired by the documentary itself, but both of them are based off of the real-life case The Commonwealth vs. Michelle Carter which was a case that involved a young girl named Michelle Carter who texted her boyfriend the night of his suicide and told him to kill himself. Not in a mean way, not like, I hate you, kill yourself. She was encouraging him to do it because he had been suicidal for a long time, and she was encouraging him like, oh, you keep putting this off. You've wanted to do this for so long and you haven't done it. Like, it's pretty disturbing. Now, I remember when this trial was happening. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but I was aware of it. And I remember thinking at the time, if someone is encouraging their partner, not out of hatred or malice, but out of some at least feigned care or concern to kill themselves, that person is probably also really mentally ill. So I didn't really think that it was fair to blame Michelle Carter for her boyfriend's death. That was my initial response. And then when I watched the Hulu series, which I watched before the documentary, but I will say I've seen them both now, and they take a very similar structure, at least in how they kind of do this little, like, push-pull thing with your emotions and how it's kind of encouraging you to lean on the case. At first, in the series, I was like, fuck Michelle Carter, hope she goes to prison don't like her at all. Then, though, as it went on, I was like, uh, it does seem like she's troubled in her own way. And then, in addition to that, there are also a lot of other factors at play in Conrad Roy's suicide. I mean, I don't personally think that you can just blame Michelle Carter for it. 
But you can look into the case and come to your own conclusion. The thing that I really appreciate about this series, though, and why I would recommend it over top of the documentary, though the documentary is certainly very good, I like that it really uses the narrative aspect of a series, a dramatization, to make you feel like you get to live with those characters for a bit and you get to feel what they were feeling more. And that is what is ultimately pretty valuable about this sort of narrative storytelling and why I would be hesitant to ever say that true crime or dramatizations of real tragic events are always bad because storytelling is just a really effective tool to get a point across or to make someone sympathize with another person. It's not something that I think should be taken for granted. And it can be used for good. It can be a tool for good just as much as it's a tool for exploitation. I thought the series did a really great job at portraying particularly Michelle and Conrad with a lot of nuance and a lot of compassion, but also just every character in the story. And if you're gonna make a TV series about real people and real events, the best thing you can do is just be respectful to your subjects and portray them as three-dimensional human beings. And I think the show did a good job with that. I wasn't able to find any information about how the real-life subjects felt about the Hulu show. I'm assuming that they were okay with it because, well, at least Conrad's family, because they were involved in the HBO documentary. So I don't know if they would have a problem with the series being made from said documentary. Maybe they would. I'm not sure. I do know that Michelle, she was released from prison early for good behavior, but part of the conditions of her release was that she couldn't profit from her story at all, so even if she approved of this show being made, she couldn't get paid for it. But regardless, the show has a pretty nuanced take on mental health and also other topics like toxic masculinity and how that possibly played a role in the suicide of Conrad Roy. And for a topic as sensitive as suicide, I thought they did a very tasteful job. Also, just as a series, I think it's really well done. There is something about it, and I don't know how to even go into it without, like, really digging into the series, and I think you should just watch it. This isn't like a full review or breakdown or analysis, but while I was watching it, I could tell pretty quickly that there must have been a lot of women behind the scenes of the show. There was a feminine touch in the way that the series was stylized that was really refreshing, because I don't think you see TV shows or movies or anything doing this kind of storytelling that's allowed to be a little outside the 
really specific norms of a true crime recreation. Like, there are multiple musical numbers in the show, and I know that that's going to sound really silly, but when you watch it, they're really well done, and they're not cheesy, at least not, not in a way that doesn't feel appropriate for the characters. Just go watch it. It's, it's really good. Now, all the ones I've mentioned so far have revolved around some form of murder or manslaughter or attempted murder. I do want to throw in one that doesn't have anything to do with death, but it is related to abuse, specifically sexual abuse, because I don't think a whole lot of people have talked about this documentary, and I found it really interesting. It's called Athlete A, and it is about the sexual abuse committed by Larry Nasser. He was that Olympics doctor who worked at Michigan State, and he sexually abused many women, many young girls, who were Olympic gymnasts. Like with the Amanda Knox documentary, I do wish this one went into a bit more depth. I think that it would have made a good series, kind of similar to a Surviving R. Kelly or something like that, where you can have a lot more victims come forward, but maybe they didn't have a whole lot of people who were willing to participate at the time. I'm not sure. But given the scope of Larry Nassar's crimes and also the pretty rampant sexual abuse in the U.S. Olympics period. I think that there's a lot of material there to explore even deeper. But what I really appreciate about this documentary and why I am recommending it is because I, for a long time, I mean, I know that there are a lot of corrupt systems out there, including, I guess, the U.S. Olympics team. I know that people can get away with really horrible stuff for long periods of time, but in Larry Nasser's case, he was so public, like, he was such a well-known doctor within the Olympics and within, like, just the entire medicine field when it comes to treating athletes, that I was kind of like, how the fuck did he get away with all of these assaults on young girls for so long when he was such a well-known personality? Because his alleged victim number is in the hundreds. It's about 200 and I think 50 or so, 250 victims that have alleged abuse at his hands. And who knows how many more people just haven't come forward publicly. You'd have to think that he was doing it to, like, every person. Because once you've got to the point where you have 250 victims, I can't see where you would draw the line. And he was doing it to some of these people many times. Like, these gymnasts were being treated by him over the course of years. And a lot of them said that it was very constant, the abuse. Like, every time they went in, or at least half the time that they went in for treatment, they were assaulted. 
in the documentary, there's one girl who says that she was assaulted in front of her mother, but Larry was standing in a way that he blocked her mother from seeing the actual assault. Like, it's crazy. And you have to think, how the fuck did this guy get away with this? And watching the documentary, you get a much clearer idea of how this happened. Number one, because just plain corruption, as per usual with events like this. But also, it becomes really clear how the entire culture of the Olympics and the treatment that the gymnasts receive on a daily basis contributed to their vulnerability and their inability to really even process what was going on and be able to recognize what they were experiencing as abuse, it really just, it makes you think, you know? I, I've i never been a big Olympics person myself, and I don't think I ever will be after watching that documentary, because I don't know how you would save this institution from total damnation. I mean, if institutions could go to hell. Whew. It's over on Netflix if you want to get real angry and sad for a bit. Finally, I gotta really, really hold myself back from rambling about this one, because I saved the best for last. This is not only my favorite true crime docu-series, or just true crime content period, it's one of my favorite TV shows or mini-series. I mean, I don't know. Can you say that a show is your favorite show if it wasn't like a like a long-running show? Are you allowed to put mini-series in the category of favorite TV shows? I, I can't see why not. So one of my favorite shows is The Keepers. It's on Netflix. It came out a couple years ago, and I remember it being kind of a big thing when it came out and people talking about it a lot, but for some reason I just didn't watch it at the time. And I watched it earlier this year, and I've watched it like three times in total. I watched it once, and then I rewatched it with my boyfriend because I made him watch it too. And then I also just rewatched it another time by myself because I really, really love this series. I feel kind of weird having so much affection for a series about a topic that is so dark, but I think if you watch it, you'll understand. I will warn you, a heavy trigger warning, if you have any sort of history of sexual abuse, proceed with caution. But if you feel like you're able to watch something that may even slightly trigger you. I mean, don't get like really triggered, but even if it's about a trauma that you've faced in the past, I still, I would say proceed with caution, but I wouldn't say definitely don't watch it because I do think that there is a real value in this series for abuse victims specifically and everyone else too. Everyone should watch this if they can, if they can stomach it. So what it is, it starts on episode one being a murder mystery-ish. 
it follows this small group of women who had begun their own amateur grassroots investigation into the disappearance and murder of a woman who goes by the name Sister Kathy. She was a nun. She worked at an all-girls Roman Catholic high school, and then she disappeared and later was found murdered. Her remains were found in 1969. There was another woman who had gone missing and eventually had her body found as well. I don't remember the specifics of that quite as much. From what I remember, there wasn't a whole lot of conclusive data to link the two murders, but the fact that they happened around the same time, and the woman who died, her name was Joyce Malecki, she looked, I guess, a lot like Sister Kathy, so I think that the theory might be that she was killed by mistake when they were attempting to kill Sister Kathy the first. I don't really know, to be honest. The documentary doesn't go into details about her death quite as much, probably because there's not as much conclusive evidence that she was a part of this whole saga. But anyway... The reason that these women are investigating the death of Sister Kathy is because they had been her students and the case was never solved. And as people who cared about Sister Kathy, they thought that the cold case nature of this was dissatisfying and also maybe even a little suspicious. Now, I'm going to spoil the ending of the first episode here because... It's a seven-part series, so you got way more surprises to go. And anyway, number one, I think that it's worth watching whether or not you know what's going to happen. I mean, like I said, I've watched it three times, so I think that it's worth it even if you've had things spoiled for you. But also, I think the fact that this whole thing revolves around a nun's death who worked at a Catholic high school... You can probably guess where the story might be headed. So, Sister Kathy was most likely murdered as an effort to cover up information that Kathy had been seemingly planning to take to authorities to report the pervasive sexual abuse that was happening within the high school she was working at. When I first started watching the series... I thought, why the fuck is this seven parts long? There's no way that there is that much to cover about this specific case. But I was wrong. In fact, you know what? I wish it was fucking longer. I wish they would do, honestly, like a follow-up, like a little reunion so I could see where some of these people... We're at in their lives. Anyway, so the reason that it's so long is, number one, because there actually is a lot of information that gets uncovered while the documentary was being made. The women leading this investigation had already uncovered quite a lot of information by the time the filming of this documentary started. But once the director got involved, obviously, like, he had resources to go and talk to certain people and interview people and... It definitely does shine a light on quite a few things related to this specific case, but also 
like all the other examples we've gone over so far, it's representative of a lot of bigger issues. It exposes corruption within that specific high school, within the Catholic Church as a whole, within the police departments that were overseeing this, and that is obviously linked to greater problems in the overall policing of the United States. It actually even specifically references the Black Lives Matter movement at some point to just talk about how structures of power can be pretty easily corrupted when there are not proper checks and balances put in place, and when we give a small group of people with very little training and human biases and conflicts of interest a whole lot of power that they don't necessarily deserve. And then even above that, just the overall judicial bodies within our government that are also susceptible to corruption and just human error and fuck-ups. There's a lot within this case that is representative of problems that America is just plagued with, so it's worth it for that. Plus, we all love a good investigation. It just feels satisfying to feel like we're earning new information, even if we're not the ones doing the actual investigation. We get to see other people getting new leads and... That's just satisfying. I love a good murder mystery. I hate murder, but I like when we get to figure out who murdered who. It's satisfying. And to warn you, there aren't super conclusive answers in this docuseries, but you get a lot closer to what the truth is, and that's satisfying in itself. Also, though, the reason that this is really seven parts is that this is a very victim-centric narrative. There's no narrator for it at all. The director, every once in a while you can hear him off-camera saying something to one of the subjects that's being interviewed, but he doesn't play a huge role in the story. He lets the subjects themselves really take control of the narrative. And that is really great, and the fact that it's split up into all of these different parts gives the subjects a lot of room to just be human beings. You're not seeing them grocery shopping or anything, but they're able to talk about the story at hand in their own homes, and they talk about their lives surrounding it. So, for instance, the investigators who are being covered in the show, they, for one thing, are very smart, and I will say that if there's anything in the series that gives me pause, it's that uh, vigilante justice and grassroots investigations can get a little iffy, because... As we were saying with the journalist thing and how average citizens don't necessarily have all of the tools and training to know how to fact check and analyze information the way a journalist would, it's the same with people trying to investigate crimes on their own as average citizens. It can get really problematic, but these bitches are smart and they're cool and I love them. And you get to see enough of them in a pretty natural setting that you don't just get an idea of what they're trying to uncover. 
you get an idea of who they are as people. You get to see their personality and you get to hear them talk about why this case was so important to them to investigate because it's not just like a fun little hobby. They really cared about Sister Kathy and the way that they talk about her, even though obviously she's not able to be in the series because she is dead. I felt like I knew her after just hearing other people discuss her. She seemed like a really, really lovely person, and it makes me really sad that she's gone. And the other nuns in this show, too. There's quite a few different nuns that talk about their time within the Catholic Church, and some of them are still religious and some of them are not. It goes into their own histories of why they wanted to join the church and why they felt so dedicated to the cause. A lot of them were really inspired by civil rights activists, which is really cool. And so as much as you're gonna leave the series hating the Catholic Church, the nuns are cool. Like, I was low-key, like, I want to be a nun after this. I don't. I would hate that. But they were so sweet. And since a lot of the series is also about the sexual abuse that had taken place within not just that school, but also some other organizations related to the Catholic Church, most of those victims are still alive, and quite a few of them participated in this documentary. And like with the women who were doing the investigation into Sister Kathy, you spend enough time with the victims that you don't just see them as victims of an assault or of abuse. You see them as human beings who happen to be victims of abuse, but it's not the core part of their identity. It has a huge part in how they've been able to move on with their life, but it's not all that they are. And it's really sweet to see them talk about their families and one of them talks a lot about her husband and how instrumental he was for her processing her trauma. It's just, oh my god, it's so, it's sweet and it's also sad and there's just a lot of feelings involved. And sometimes, sometimes we need to feel things. And then like with Athlete A or I Just Killed My Father, there's a lot of discussion in here about abuse and how abuse can manifest. And I wanted to include all of these different examples because they each hit on different ways that abuse can manifest and persist. So with I Just Killed My Father, that's more of like a family abuse situation. With Athlete A, that has a lot to do with the culture of the U.S. Olympics. And then with the Keepers, there's a lot in here about how specific religious shame was used as a tactic to make these girls, well, not just girls, spoiler, sorry, even more vulnerable to the abuse in the first place, and also as a tactic to keep them silent. Because when you instill into someone that what they are experiencing makes them a sinner, they're probably going to be a lot more hesitant to take what is happening to them to somebody else and report it to the proper authorities. Though, even sometimes when they do report it to the proper authorities, it doesn't go well. Anyway, and 
related to the abuse, but also related to any sort of trauma, whether it comes from specific human-on-human abuse or not, there is a lot of discussion in the documentary about repressed memories and the controversial takes around repressed memories, because some people think that they're not real, that repressed memories are like a myth, and there is some legitimacy to that in that when repressed memories were first discovered, they, they weren't super careful all the time psychologists about how they went about getting people to uncover their repressed memories. I mean, really, any sort of specific therapy that's meant to help you uncover repressed memories is probably a little iffy. There are therapies that can help, but that's if you've already started to uncover memories and you're going further down that lane. But if you're just going to a therapy session like, hey, I think I have a repressed memory. Will you help me out? Not going to get the results you're looking for. Because what a lot of people didn't realize around that time was that human memories are really malleable and you can implant a false memory into someone through suggestion and coercive questions. I mean, I don't want to say coercive because it's not like they were doing it on purpose, but I guess I'll say leading questioning. So that was a danger. There were people around when repressed memories were starting to first be researched and looked into and practiced as a method of therapy, as a means of uncovering repressed memories. There were a lot of fuck-ups and a lot of evidence of people not having real repressed memories and just having falsely implanted ones. But that does not mean that repressed memories aren't real. They are. They definitely are. And in cases of abuse where we may want to press charges on someone for a crime that was committed a long time ago, not only does it take a long time for trauma victims who already know their victims to feel comfortable coming forward and seeking some sort of legal counsel, the fact that repressed memories are a thing that exists means that a statute of limitations being put on a crime like abuse or anything that is related to trauma is pretty ridiculous because someone might not even realize how traumatized they are and how damaged they were from a specific crime committed against them until years after the fact, which could be well past the statute of limitations. So that's a big thing that needs to get addressed in our overall justice system. But even though the justice system is fucked up and there is corruption and there are just evil fucking people in the world, I hope that this series can at least help some people in seeing abuse victims, number one, as people, as human beings, not just little bodies that bad things happen to. But also, I hope that people who have gone through similar situations to the ones that are shown in the series can hear the stories from the victims featured on the show and relate to them and maybe even take something 
about their stories and how they've been able to deal with their trauma and with their grief and apply it to their lives. That'd be nice, right? And as horrible as the events that prompted this docuseries to even be made were, I also did leave it feeling kind of good about the world in that a lot of the people depicted in the show, the people who are playing a part in this investigation and who were taking part in the conversations about abuse and trauma, they all seem like really good people. So as much as there are horrible people like Jeffrey Dahmer in the world, there are also nice ones too. So that's what I'll leave you on. Um, I had another episode that I wanted to come out this month. It was going to be a 15th anniversary episode about Britney Spears' Blackout album, but uh, that already passed. The anniversary did. And also, like with everything that I do, it just sort of kept growing in scope, where instead of being one episode about Blackout, it then turned into, like, an outline for three separate episodes, a three-parter, and it's still coming. It's just not going to be on the anniversary anymore, but that's okay, because you know what? Brittany didn't even fucking acknowledge it on the anniversary anyway, so if she doesn't have to pay attention to dates, neither do I. So the first part will be out soon-ish, and then I might also do a more rambly episode about Taylor Swift's new album and some various hot takes that I've seen around it. But I'm I'm organizing that right now. So if you have a hot take about Taylor Swift's album, you can reach out. You can find the podcast Instagram at Medusini Girl on Instagram. I just regular Medusini was taken for some reason. I don't I made that word up. I, I don't know who has that. But it's just M-E-D-U-S-O-N-E-G-I-R-L. I just started that Instagram, too, so it's only got, like, 10 followers, so... Go find me there, and send me DMs, or you can just email me. The email is listed on medusini.com, however you want to get in contact. Or, also, I mean, the YouTube page is up, and I've started to get some subscribers there, so some of you might already be listening on YouTube. And if you are, feel free to comment. Comment, like, subscribe, do all that shit. And if you're not listening on YouTube, you could just head over there and comment and act like you listen to it on YouTube. That's fine. Anyway, uh, bye. Love you. Don't get murdered.